Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the penultimate uh, event of our uh, coming of age of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda 21 in 2021 series. Um, uh, for this year, this is that we will have one more in, on December 7th. But today's session, I'm delighted to um, be here today with Monica McWilliams, Halima Mohammed, and Amina Rasul, um, who I will introduce to you in just a second. They are all uh, unbelievable women involved in peace work and very pioneering work um, across Northern Ireland, Kenya, and the Philippines. And the title of our session today is Putting Peace Back into Politics. Um, it's an important moment, given that um, the latest research shows that 41% of the uh, world population feels that social cohesion has gone down in their societies um, uh, over, over the last few years. And since we know that, according to the uh, 2021 Peace Index, um, peacefulness has been on the decline nine of the last 13 years globally. So putting peace back into politics is a timely topic, and um, I'm delighted to have some extraordinary women um, here with me today. Um, first off, we have Monica McWilliams, who's the Emeritus Professor at Ulster University's Transitional Justice Center. Um, she was the Chief Commissioner of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, um, founder, co-founder of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition Party, the uh, and, uh, um, NIWC was um, uh, elected to be part of the negotiations in Northern Ireland back in the 1990s. And, um, and in fact, their work was one of the big inspirations behind Resolution 1325. Um, we have Halima Mohammed, who's the co-founder and executive director of uh, Coast Education Center, uh, COEC in Kenya. She has been fighting for women's rights um, at the grassroots level in East um, Africa and Kenya for many years. And a lot of her work has been related to the issues of rising violent extremism in her context. Um, and and de-radicalization work. And um, Amina Rasul, president of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, member of the Board of Regents of Mindanao State University. Uh, She's been a presidential advisor on youth affairs and youth commission, um, served with the Philippine National Oil Corporation, the Development Bank of Philippines, so coming with a private sector background, but also very much involved in um, issues of conflict, uh, democracy, pluralism, and uh, Islam, actually, linking the issues um, in terms of uh, what faith and um, secularity tell us. Um, so lovely to have you all with us, uh, with me today. Um, for the audience, if you have questions, please put them in the chat and, um, and we will reach them. And we have about an hour and 15 minutes to, uh, for this conversation. Um, so my first question to everyone, um, and I mean, I'll start with you just because you're the last person that I, that I just introduced, but how do you identify yourself? Are you a politician? Are you a peace builder? Um, is there one category? Uh, how do you identify yourself and what is the work that you're doing right now? Uh, in general, past, uh, present and future, I see myself really as a public servant, whether I'm in government or now civil uh, society. Um, a community servant. That's that's what I am. Community servant. How did you get involved in this work? I mean, how do you, you know when you? What's the work that you do, and and how would you? How did you get in there? 
But that's a funny thing. Uh, it uh, took a long time for me to to get here. I, I worked most of my life with government. I had a, a stint many years at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. And then my mom uh, was uh, requested by then President uh, Corazon Aquino to run for the Senate. They needed women uh, to be in the senatorial slate. And she was the best known because she had focused on uh, adult illiteracy for, oh my goodness, for 20 years. And most of her um, students were women from, from all over. So I resigned from the World Bank, left DC, uh, went back to the Philippines to organize her office. And at that point in time, I saw something that stayed with me and later on forced me to be more active in being a community servant. And it was the fact that Muslims, women, and especially Muslim women are what I call the silenced majority or the silenced minority, as the case may be. The, the voices that spoke for us were either politicians or rebel leaders. But the majority of the community, you didn't hear what they wanted. They didn't want war when there was negotiation. They didn't want um, farms for arms. They wanted uh, the, the stake in the community settled, uh, peace in the community so that they could dream, a dream of beautiful life for their children and, and their family. At that point, I decided that I would help give voice to to our silenced uh, uh, people, our silenced community. That's how I got into this fear. Thank you. Um, Halima, uh, when Amina speaks about the silent uh, majority and specifically- Muslim, Silenced. Silenced, I should say. Yes. Silenced majority. Um, and, and especially with the women, it, it kind of resonates with me in the work that you're doing. Does it resonate with you? How do you describe yourself in your work? Uh, thank you very much, Sanam. And uh, it's a pleasure being among the, uh, amongst the strong women today. Um, well, at first, uh, I actually became aware to the uh, situations in my community, especially the trauma and stigma of women around my community. And that is how I came to be aware of uh, how will I be able to support my community, especially the widows. The experience started from 2009, and uh, I witnessed how a family, uh, a, a family shunned and isolated their daughters-in-law because their, husbands, uh, their husband was shot. They believe that uh, she has brought them bad luck, uh, and there's no logic to that. So it, it has always been, it is superstition, but it drives so much of the behavior in our communities. And it is a key dynamic in our communities where you know, violent extremism has been spreading. So with all this, it actually made me to come out, try to help my community the best that I can and offer psychosocial support and care to my community, especially the, the women and girls. So it's what is happening within us as a community that I felt I, I needed to stand out and be able to, to speak about and be able to help my community and be able to support them one or another. And, and when you say um, uh, the, the son was killed, was that in, as a result of the sort of to do with Al-Shabaab or violent extremism, or was it just, was it a, an incident that, that was accidental? It was due to violent extremism. So this is when the husband was shot 
and uh, the family thinks that uh, she's the, she's she has actually brought bad luck to the community. So the superstition is very high within my community, and people feel like you you are a bad luck, so they don't need you. So the, the woman is being shunned away by the society, not only by the relatives, but again, even the society itself. So uh, whether she has like three kids or six kids, so she's just away from that community. She has no place to go. So that traumatic state to that woman that made me to be able to come up with programs to be able to support them, either in terms of microfinances, either in terms of uh, 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 psychosocial care. So that brought me to where I am today to support them. Thank you. Um, uh, Monica, um, trauma, stigma for women, um, the silenced majority, uh, Northern Ireland, a completely different, seemingly completely different environment. But um, does any of this resonate with you in terms of how you got involved in the work that you've been doing and, and, um, and how do you describe yourself? The connections are certainly there. Every context is unique. Um, but there are huge similarities in what we've just heard. In terms of um, what Amina said, we used to say, when sleeping women awake, mountains will move. And we were never sleeping. Um, we were always moving mountains. Um, and by Jove, when we woke up, we certainly moved those mountains. And we wake up in different ways. I describe myself as an accidental activist. A conflict does terrible things. It makes ordinary women fall into extraordinary times. And then they become extraordinary women. Um, and they find different types of leadership skills. They just don't um, ape the men who were there before them, because that does not create progressive change. And they certainly shouldn't pull the ladder up, because they have managed to get inside the system to try and change it. So that, those were the lessons. I describe myself today as an adult learner. I'm constantly learning. I was a student, then I was a teacher. I was a peace negotiator, signed a Good Friday Agreement, one of 3% in the world to do so. I became a politician, but all the time I was a learner. Um, and I learn as much today from what Helena has to say and what Amina has to say. Um, as I do from what I've learned from my own conflict. So that's the benefit of having these exchanges, um, is learning what works and what doesn't. And today, Northern Ireland is held up as a model of conflict resolution. But sometimes I say that we made as many mistakes as we made benefits. And you learn from your mistakes as long as you don't repeat them. Um, and there are, I'm no doubt in this conversation we will discuss those mistakes, those problems, but also we will want to do what I am constantly trying to do is to bring solutions to the table. It's, it's, um, it's interesting that the, the, the way that you, I mean, on the one hand, it's extraordinary, as you say, you're one of the 3% of women in the world who have signed a peace agreement. Only 3% of women um, are, only 3% of, of signatories to, to peace agreements are women. So this is 21 years after the resolution, after 1325. It's amazing how the progress is so little. And you did it before 1325. So, so I'm going to talk, we're going to come to that in a, in a minute. Um, I wanted to just quickly ask you before we carry on. So each of you, as you say, you've had multiple roles, multi different ways of describing yourselves. Um, what are you doing right now? What is what's what's keeping you excited and and kind of um, 
inspired, if you want, uh, right now in terms of moving your agendas or moving these mountains, as as uh, Monica was saying. Um, uh, Amina, what are, you, what are you up to these days? Well, I'm imprisoned in my home. That's a problem of being a senior citizen during the time of COVID. Your movement are more restricted than, than the younger generation, such as yourself, Sanam. And because I could no longer go to the communities uh, to do capacity building for, for women on human rights, on democracy, on uh, participation in politics, I did the only thing that I could do. Uh, a friend suggested start a podcast. So I did, not knowing anything about podcasting. And that was three months ago. And uh, my, uh, we call it She Talks Peace because as uh, Monica said, there are so few women who are at the peace table and getting less uh, every, every year, especially because of the, uh, of the pandemic. So we started it and we call it She Talks Peace. My co-host is from Kuala Lumpur, uh, who's a journalist. And um, we've been using this as a platform to bring the experiences, the advocacies, the highs and lows of peace builders, especially women from the Middle East and North Africa to uh, Indonesia to um, Mindanao. Um, uh, we had Palestine. And this is something I'm so excited about. I got the podcast uh, analytics um, today. And guess what? Um, we have our first listeners from Turkey, and we have our first listeners from Nevada, Oregon, <laughs> and Georgia. So it's not just uh, women and young men. 30% of our listeners are young men from uh, ASEAN who are listening. There is a world out there who I think will, will be more encouraged to support our advocacies for peace in the community, for lasting peace. We just need to be able to, to reach them, to, to touch them. And I guess podcasting is uh, the way to go. So she talks peace through the podcast. That's fantastic. Um, uh, Monica, what about you? Um, well, very similar. I didn't do a podcast, but I did a book. <laughs> um, I wrote a book called Stand Up, Speak Out, um, because I was, a, I'm a cancer survivor, so I had to be particularly careful during the pandemic, and so it provided me with the time. Sometimes they say there, every cloud has a silver lining, and none of us ever thought that um, when COVID came there would be any silver lining, um, but for me that was a space and a silence and a quiet place uh, to sit down and, and write the book. And it will be published in two weeks, so I'm very proud of that. But what I'm doing outside of that is I'm trying, I call myself maybe a, an enabler today in terms of enabling the, those frameworks that were designed to put women in a box to change. The kinds of things Halima has just talked about in terms of the superstitions and the customs, and the negativity, the stigma, um, there's things that took away our confidence, reduced our self-esteem. The people who shouted at me, shut up and sit down, you stupid woman, when I was the leader of a political party and I was standing in a, an elected forum, um, changed the language. So I am now working with young women 
Um, I am on a commission to disband armed groups. Um, and what I do is I figured out that most of the attention was being given to young men and that young women were being left out of that picture. And when I talk to these young women, they tell me, we're supposed to keep our heads down. Back to Amina's issue, um, to keep silent, be silent, um, because they are told you should not be standing up and speaking out. Um, or that through fear and coercive control, a bit like violence against women, um, that they will be re-victimized if they speak out. So I also find that it's not the victimization that I'm focusing on, it's their agency. They mm. are the change makers. I mean, we've just had um, the climate change conference in Glasgow, where we've heard about the difference that young people make. Um, and I have to say, uh, I kind of smirk a little at those people who are now saying that young people should be angry. They're right to be angry. I think that we've always been angry. Women were angry, but it didn't get us very far. You actually have to get organized. You have to get your networks into place. You have to get your address book sorted out. You have to be able to get uh, people who are going to make those changes join you. And young people are showing us the new ways of doing that. So I'm putting all my energy into a project called Politics in Action with youth. And so I spend a lot of my time now, um, because of the internet, um, connecting young people over um, the, between schools. Our schools are completely segregated by religion. And so one of the ways we've found now is to connect them is by the internet. They know all the technology. And it's a safer space where they're able to have some really difficult, contentious discussions on, on, on our own situation of conflict, but also on reproductive rights, on the issues of same-sex marriage, for instance, which are all very difficult topics in schools. Um, and that they're finding that they're making much more progress. And the final thing is to create a citizen's assembly. Okay. We have found that the people are ahead of the politicians. And when we went to the referendum to vote on some of those issues that I've just spoken about, the people said yes. And the reason why they said yes was because of the Citizens' Assembly. Um, it was a representative, inclusive uh, assembly of the people. And they took testimony and they took evidence on some of the most difficult issues, like rape, like um, fetal, fetal abnormalities. All of that is illegal in terms of, of this country, in terms of terminations, and a very difficult issue to raise in terms of a country that's very religious. And yet the citizens' assemblies managed to do it in Ireland, and they changed that. Now, in Northern Ireland, where I live, we haven't got one, and that's where I'm putting my efforts at the minute. Thank you. That's, it, it's, it, first of all, it's, it's fascinating to see how you, uh, the, the linkages between the sort of the, what you would say the hard politics, but also how actually, as we all know, women's bodies and issues of reproductive health and so forth become so integral to, to the political space. So, so it, it, for us, it's personal, but it's actually highly political and, and, it, and it, it's, it's always uh, uh, seems contentious generation upon generation. Um, Halima, tell us about you. And, and uh, when Monica was talking about working with young people, I was thinking about your work and, um, and the, the campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening and, and who you're reaching these days? Uh, thank you very much, Sanam. 
Uh, well, I thought you'd never ask. Um, uh, basically, for, for me here in Kenya, we are doing the She Builds Peace campaign. Uh, it's a campaign that is uh, uh, under WASAL, that is Women Alliance for Security Leadership. And uh, it's actually hosted by ICANN. And uh, the campaign itself, basically for us here in Kenya, is to ensure that we have legislators, women legislators who are 47 in our country and are also part of the members of parliament to ensure that they are part and parcel of our initiative to ensure the recognition and support of women peace builders. To ensure that, um, uh, uh, sorry, in, on 2020 in May, my country actually um, endorsed 1325, uh, resolution 1325, that is National Action Plan 1325. But again, when looking at the document, most of it is on the victims, most of it is on um, the survivors, and uh, but not much on uh, on um, on women peace builders. So we started the campaign in 2020 to ensure that uh, our our ideas of supporting and recognizing women peace builders are put in place. So we rally around uh, women, uh, women parliamentarians, that is women representative, to get their support so that I can push this to parliament. So what we're doing, for example, like this year, we're doing it in Kilifi County, is part of the coastal county, one of the 47 counties. Uh, last year, we did it in, in Mombasa, where I, I, where, I, uh, where I live. So for Kilifi County, we are getting the women representative to, to sign a recommendation with the women peace builders within Kilifi County and rally around other 47 women peace, uh, women representative to be able to champion this in their caucus. 47 women representative have a caucus. So we want to have them as champions of women peace builders. We want to have them in parliament to advocate for women peace builders recognition. I can't have, we can't have Halima being recognized in New York but we need Halima to be recognized in Kenya. We need Halima to be recognized with the little efforts she's making, the little efforts she's making with her community. So that is what we are trying to ensure my government listens to women peace builders, recognize the little effort Halima is doing on the ground and making a difference, the little that we can. Thank you very much. Thank Sarah. you. Moving mountains is, is what I, yeah, this, this is, this is a really impressive. Um, yep. I'm going to come back to the question of, of women in politics in, in a second, but I wanted to sort of get into the topic of, I mean, the, the title of the, of the talk, which, um, or the event, which is putting peace back into politics. Um, in my, in all the years that I've been in this space, um, I naively assume that when we say peace negotiations for a country, we actually meant peace. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking, you know, what do we mean by peace and conflict transformation and all these wonderful sort of theories that are out there. But the reality of what we see in terms of how um, the international system for setting up peace talks it has been is that it's really about the political elite and about power sharing. And it's, and it's just sort of it's almost like saying, OK, we're going to bring the war into the political space. It's, it's the sort of the reverse of the Klaus Witz kind of uh, uh, approach. So. I want to ask you, for you, does the title putting peace back into politics actually resonate? Does it mean anything? Um, Monica, does it, how does this, you know, when, when, you, when you sort of hear the, this, this concept and you look back to what happened in Northern Ireland or what is continuing to happen right now, how do you, what does it mean for you? Um, it's an excellent question. And I think every politician should be asked that question because for a lot of the men that I worked for, it meant getting back into power. Um, and they had a nostalgia for the old system, whereas we wanted to transform that system. Um, and it's done in different ways. We talk about uh, the need for electoral reform. 
we need for a different type of election system. If the old system doesn't work, then try something new. Um, and those are the questions that women ask. Uh, for a, One question on the chat line I see was about what one thing would you focus on? Um, and to me, uh, electoral reform was very important, but affirmative action. These old guys don't understand the importance of affirmative action. They think that the meritocracy, a bit like an aristocracy, um, works perfectly. Um, it doesn't. And I'm not going to wait for another 100 years. I won't even be around in 100 years. I'll be pushing up the daisies um, for women to get into positions of leadership. We have now, and all of us women on this chat and this event will know we spent our time endlessly creating capacity, building confidence, raising cash, even putting childcare in places. And we've only discovered that it's actually the system that needs changed, that it's not the actual women themselves, that we can have all the capacity and all the confidence. But if the system isn't prepared, and that's where I believe in affirmative action, um, and indeed putting peace back into politics isn't just about taking the guns out of politics or disbanding the armed groups or demobilizing the military. And all of those things are important because I have been involved in all of them. Mm -hmm. It also means building from the grassroots, the bottom up women's movement learned this. It's about including those voices. It's about going out into civil society and, and seeing where who kept the peace when the politicians were breaking the peace? Who was making the peace? Who was building the peace? And um, so for me, the biggest mistake that we made after I'd signed the Good Friday Agreement, everybody walked away from the table thinking that was it. We'd done it. But the hard work only starts. It was only a piece of paper. And we had to deliver um, on what we promised. And I made the mistake of having too many things that were aspirations. Mm -hmm. instead of guarantees. And I learned that when I became Chief Commissioner for Human Rights, that if you do not have the institutional reforms, which are really important in a changed society for making peace, if you do not have the oversight mechanisms, if you do not have good monitoring that includes internationals, not just the national and regional actors, but those who are honest with integrity, making sure that you deliver, then it just remains an aspiration. And 25 years later, I'm working as hard today on delivering that agreement and what was promised was the day I signed it. So having a validation um, program, having an implementation committee um, to, to push forward, because the politicians for sure will reinterpret the agreement in a way that only suits them. And you know that in Kenya. You know that in the Philippines. We know that in every country that, where there's been a conflict. They will interpret it in a way that suits their sectional interests. And that's why it's very important for women. Not all women are peacemakers, but I think women often focus on the bigger vision. Where do we want to be in five years, in 10 years? And that's what's, for me, about putting peace back into politics. Peacemaking is one thing. Peace building, as you know, is a very different thing. Thank you. No, and, and it's, it's everything you say resonates. I, I was involved with, in, uh, with the UN and the Somalia process at one point, and everybody got excited. They signed the agreement and it was actually a very solid agreement in terms of at least elements of inclusion. Literally the next day, even the, the UN walked it back. I mean, it, it was as if, okay, we did that last night and to, today we get back to the, to the normal business of, of the you know, horse trading and, and, and so forth. So, so it, to me, it seems, seems like 
it's a it's a question of mindset shifts as well in terms of genuinely bringing people along to believe that a different way of doing business is possible and it's good for everybody. And, uh, and uh, as um, Sanam, I made the comparison at the Peace Talks table because I'd worked on violence against women on domestic violence. As a professor, that was my entire life's research was on uh, intimate, as I call it, intimate terrorism when everybody else was talking about different kinds of terrorism. And I put my arm up one day and I said, not all arms are imported, showing that this fist could do as much damage. So when we talked about taking the arms away and disarmament, we had to think about decommissioning the mind. What leads to that? And that's also the attitudes towards women. What leads to those attitudes? In a transformed society, you might move from violent conflict But if you still have those misogynist attitudes, then we haven't transformed. And that was the point that I constantly made at the Peace Talks. And that's why it's really important for women to be at those tables, because they talk about the attitudes that led to the war, that led to the hate speech, and that it's the attitudes that need to change the language, not just the physical infrastructure in terms of of taking guns and weapons out of the situation. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, now you hear, uh, as, as Monica speaking, I'm thinking about, um, again, the situation in the Philippines, the situation in Mindanao. Um, we were, I was there with you a few years ago. Um, uh, how does this resonate with you in terms of what is put on paper? What is the political attitude? What happens when, when politics change, when elections come along? Because this is also, you know, the, 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 some of the, the sort of the downside of our democratic processes where, you make an agreement and then the next day, you know, you have elections and there's a new president in place. Um, how does that uh, resonate in terms of the situation in the Philippines now? Oh, it resonates very much, especially those uh, in the conflict areas. Um, one thing I have to say at the outset, the world thinks that violent extremism at the hands of faith-based groups like ISIS, um, the Taliban, Boko Haram, um, this this is something that um, is very grave indeed, and we need to address it. But in the Philippines, I would say that the threat to human security, to national security, is less the faith-based extremists and more the ideological uh, extremists like the Communist Party, New People's uh, Army, Uh, National uh, Defense Front, um, because they're all over the Philippines Mm -hmm. and they want an overthrow of the of the system. So when we talk about peace uh, being put back into politics, we're not talking about little silos here of Muslim communities. We're talking about the whole country. But the sad part is we seem to have taken uh, several steps back. Um, in terms of women being at the table, in spite of the fact that the more women at the, ta- at the table, the more sustainable, because the women, and I've seen this uh, in action from my mother's time to the time of um, Secretary Gingdeles, whom, whom you know, uh, Sanam, and I think Monica uh, knows her too, where the negotiations is not just with the political elites, what I mentioned earlier, the rebels or the politicians, But it goes down to the community because if the community accepts it, accepts the change, then, I mean, there's a surah in in Islam that says Allah will only change the condition of man 
if he changes it himself. So if the community decides to accept a change and does it from within, then it goes all the way back up. And if you have a peace process going on, it is very uh, stable footing. Monica was talking earlier about the big picture. But for me, when I see the big picture, I actually see hundreds, thousands of little family pictures. Because it's true, we have spearheads who punch a hole in the dam, but that hole will not make the wall crack if you don't have the masses of women behind to topple the wall down. And those little family pictures, that's the reason why I see women at the community level taking the risk, putting themselves at risk, working tirelessly to change the community, to have a, a foundation for peace because of the picture of their family. They don't want a car. They don't want to go with Jeff Bezos to the moon. What they want is a safe space so that their children, their family, their sisters, their mothers can have a nice life. You, know, you asked us once um, what it was that the communities would really want in a, in a peace agreement. And I always said, every time I was asked, we just want to be treated. We don't want special treatment. We want to be treated like an ordinary citizen, but not an ordinary citizen of my conflict-affected town of Holosulu. I want to be treated like an ordinary citizen of the premier cities of Luzon, of Makati, where you have good education, you have good transportation, you have good uh, health system. So ordinary citizen, but not the citizen of the most marginalized community on the face of the earth. Thank you. Um, Halima, in, um, in Kenya, you guys, I mean, I, Kenya for years was called the island of peace in Africa and, and so forth. And then all of a sudden in 2007, 2008, you had election violence, which was really horrific. Um, and I was there soon after that doing doing a doing some a study actually on what's going on with young men and how they got involved in the violence. But what's happened since then? And and you know, coming back to your point about getting women into the into the legislature and stuff, um, how do you understand putting peace back into politics in the Kenyan context? Um, thank you, Sanam. Well, for me, basically putting peace back to politics is to ensure that we look in both our our legal acts. One, uh, looking at the Political Parties Act, where we ensure that the two-third two gender rule is attained, which is not attained at the moment. And two, is to ensure that women are not given positions in the political party as tokens. They are given with the standards that they deserve. And three, is to ensure that uh, as women, and as women peace builders, those positions are taken uh, with care. Why do I mean by care? Because sometimes you, you might be contributing a lot to a political party and uh, you are taking as, uh, okay, I call them flower girls because they don't contribute anything apart from, you know, being cheerleaders in those political parties. Um, uh, as much as I want to say that uh, they contribute, uh, you know, in terms of, let's say, uh, legal cares, maybe, or bills in a certain way. But again, when you ask, when you go back and ask them, what have you done for your community? You were elected for five years. What do you have to show a track record for your community? 
and there's a zero work that is done. So to me, I think we have a lot to work on to ensure that we get correct women into the next coming general election. Even if it's try to talk to women taking up these positions and ensure that we have correct people in those positions. So for me, putting peace back, uh, putting, uh, peace back to politics is, is ensuring that as a woman peace builder, as a peace builder, one, uh, when, we, when we talk about politics, emotions are inevitable. But again, we need to ensure that as a person, one, I look at the fairness of my community, loyalty of the groups that we work with. Two, I look at uh, you know, caring for the vulnerable. Not necessarily you look at the dynasty and those who are not, but again, fairness need to be reason, needs to resonate across the border, across the people that are actually taking up these positions in power. It, it's um it's interesting to to hear kind of this idea you know Monica you mentioned you know the meritocracy doesn't work um, uh, Halima you're talking about getting the right women <laughs> I'm curious about whether uh, we should also be talking about the right men mm. you know, is it is it always the, are we just assuming that we have to get good women yeah. you know because it's you know we've lots of I, what we see actually in many conservative political contexts that they have co-opted right. women and put them there as as the front. To, to actually uh, push forward some really regressive uh, attitudes. But um, have we given up on the good guys? No. Uh, no. No. I don't think so, Sanam. Um, I, went to, uh, um, I went to the African Union Conference in Addis a few years ago. And the, the, every time the women talked about um, getting the men to join them, they started clicking their fingers. I hadn't seen this before. Instead of clapping, they were clicking. And by the end of the conference, we were all clicking because the whole emphasis is getting men to stand up and speak alongside women. As the Liberian woman said, not behind us, not in front of us, but beside us. Um, and I love to hear them singing that song. Um, and that's very difficult given the norms and the customs. Um, but the men, I think, now who are joining women in my coalition, it was called the Women's Coalition, we were accused of being sexist. Um, but both our law allowed it and the attitudes of the men allowed it. Because the men who came into our coalition said, we are here to push and help you go forward. We are not here to take those positions ourselves. We are joining your coalition to make sure that you get elected and that we will hang up the posters, we will climb up the ladders, we will knock the doors, we will stuff the envelopes, we will do all the things that the women are normally accustomed to doing in their kitchens. And it gave me great heart, and it, it, it really gave me the ability to see that when men do that, it is a very good thing for women. We cannot do this alone. Um, and it, and it, it, sometimes men are heard better when they say something. And we used to give our motions and our proposals to the men at the mm -hmm. table and said, you put those forward. Because when we put them forward, they'll say, oh, here, the women are just at it again. And so good men who are prepared to do that are much needed. And we need a critical mass of them. Um, Amina, in, in the Philippines, do you, is it, I mean, and also, Amina Halima, it, sometimes I wonder whether it takes more courage for them or some they're afraid to raise some of these issues or to take a stand. I, I, it's very interesting to, that, that 
when we speak about peace and, and so forth, it's really not just for women. It's for everybody. It's actually yeah. for our boys and for our men. And so it, it's, it, mm-hmm. it benefits the whole of society. And yet there seems to be um, either a reluctance or um, some sort of, I don't know, fear or embarrassment for, for often for men to, to take that role, either to be supportive or to walk alongside without having to kind of take on the role of mansplaining or, or, uh, or feeling that they need to somehow take over. Is, is that, does that resonate in, in, in any of your contexts? Yeah, but um, I think in, at least uh, my experience uh, with the national um, politics, uh, it's more what their priorities are. And it has been very rare that a national leader, a president, uh, the head of the Senate, the head of Congress has uh, human security as a top priority. They always talk about state security or border with China. But when you talk about human security, uh, that's sort of iffy. And I always um, hark back to the time of former President Ramos, who was a general. Mm-hmm. But under him, um, we signed the first uh, peace agreement in Asia ending decades of armed warfare between state and the Moro National Liberation Front, and finally having uh, the, an autonomous regional government. Because Ramos, his background was engineering and uh, intelligence. So he listened, consensual. So he, he, he always decides by, uh, by consensus. And Remarkably, he was a general and he was the one who gave so much importance to the uh, what, what we now call the Commission on Women, the National Commission on the Role of Filipino Women. Every quarter, he insisted that there would be a board meeting with all of the commissioners and him so that they could lay out what is the agenda of government to push for the empowerment of, uh, of women. We've had two female presidents. But as much as I adore former President uh, Corazon Aquino, who is an icon of democracy, Ramos did a lot more for the status of women. He even supported uh, family planning, uh, giving more control to women over their their bodies. Um, Mm -hmm. He couldn't go all the way uh, as, as far as, uh, as women wanted, because we have a very uh, strong church. So it doesn't really matter if you're male or female. You just have to look at the people who uh, walk the walk, and, you know, put their money where their, their mouth is. And give me a man who's going to, as Monica said, walk beside me so that we can advance uh, the human rights, the democracy agenda forward, instead of um, a woman leader who may say that she's for you, but at the end of the day, sells you, sells you out, sells your border to another country. I don't know. So. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm, I mean, it just struck me that you're, you're sort of in between Halima and, uh, and uh, Monica in the sense that you're dealing with Catholic 
strong Catholic presence and, and a strong church there, and then also a, a, a Muslim community. So, so oh, the yes. issues of reproductive health, women's rights. I mean, there's a lot of similarity in terms of where, whatever they, how these things come together in, in the Philippines. Um, Halima, yeah, dealing with uh, in Africa and, and in, in the Kenyan context, um, the good guys, the good good men, good, you know, as you said, you've, already, you've had the women in politics who have been uh, tokenistic, but um, do we have a critical mass of good men to, to support the kind of agenda that you're working for? Yes, we, we do. We do have a large number of men uh, legislators supporting our initiative. But again, the most important thing that I usually talk about is they use it against women is women are enemies of themselves. So that to, um, you know, degrade women from taking up these positions when it comes to election time. At the same time, um, the question that I always ask myself, if we have those who are pro-women, will, wouldn't we have two-third gender rule attained today in our country and in Kenya specifically? But again, Whenever it comes to their agenda, for example, they need to put some hike on their allowances so they will rally around everybody else in parliament and get bills signed by the president. Mm -hmm. But again, having the two-third general attained in all aspects, today we are at a loss as a country. At the same time, uh, we have, a, we, uh, for example, in Mombasa, in uh, a, a, a legis uh, legislation in Mombasa that is um, the county uh, the county assembly we have majority of uh, majority of the political party leading within the county assembly but again you will see in other counties where you, you women don't have say especially the legislators both at the county level and national level because it all resonates with what does the party want what are you supposed to say during such uh, proceedings in parliament and is it pro your party that you are in support with? If you are supposed to keep quiet, Sanam, trust me, you will keep quiet the whole session for two hours. You won't say anything. You'll only register your presence. When it comes to vote, you raise your hand, you vote, and that's it. Then we ask ourselves, why do we need her? Why do we need Halima, who is not contributing anything in parliament? Why do we always have to vote her in? We are done with this kind of women today. We, we are rallying around women telling them we cannot vote you in. Even mm. if it's sending a memorandum to parliament, we have these bills that need to be passed. We have different legislation that need to be passed. What are you sitting there doing nothing? Just endorsing men's legislation to be passed and nothing for us. Mm. So sometimes it's a pity when we talk about politics, like I said, you know, emotions, you know, hype. But again, to me, I, I feel like, um, if we, we, we have men, we, we don't have large men that support the initiative of women peace builders because some of them are, are, are still back into their traditions and still believe that, you know, the aspect of women, uh, you know, uh, even if you are educated, you still end up in the kitchen. You know, even if you have your law degree, uh, Halima has a her law degree, she'll still end up in the kitchen. They have no idea what we stand up for, what we do each and every day, what we support our fellow women to do. And we also tell them, you, you, you are not the only ones who are, who are undergoing gender-based violence. You are also, it's, you're also uh, part and parcel of victims. So to them to speak up as members of parliament when such kind of cases erupt, you know, they feel like it's a shame. Why do I need to speak up? So these kind of things, we tell them it takes two to tango. So we are here for them. We are here to ensure that our, our, our ideas on women peace builders and recognition is taken into consideration. But again, we need to put cards on the table and tell them, 
we have this for you. You need elections in 2022. You need to get back to business, get back, back into power. What do you have for us? We will not elect you unless we endorse something. And we are calculating between now and August, and between now and March before they go to recess. What can you do for us between now and March before you go to recess? Can you pass these bills? Because now everybody else is hyping on the election in 2022. They don't want to hear anything else. But again, we have to put our bargaining chip on the table. You want this, we, you, you, want, you want votes, we want this. So what do you have for us? Can you, do an, can you establish a, you know, a political framework for long-term peace for us as women peace builders or as a country at large? Mm. So we, we really have to, to put our ideas back on track and uh, to force them between now and March before recess that they enact these laws. Thank you. We have a, a, a question in the chat, which kind of, you know, links in with, with this with uh, this conversation, which is somebody saying peace and politics are not compatible. Yeah, I saw um, that. Peace is about uh, cooperation. Politics is about competition. And then they've also then then kind of genderized yeah. say men compete, women cooperate. Peace will never come from politics. Um, nope. I, yeah, I'm going to open up the floor. I tell you, nope. Monica, go for it. It's <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> a typical binary that yeah, you're yeah. either on one side or the other. Mm. Um, it's both and. It's peace and politics. Mm. Everything we do, Joseph, who wrote the question, everything we do is political. You, if you make the mistake of saying they're the people over there that are doing politics, that's the first mistake you make. That you yourself are a political activist. You're a political person. We make change through politics. We make change in formal politics and in small p, informal politics. The Women's Coalition got elected because it was small p politics of civil society that we brought to the table. And in relation to what Halima said, what I found was that we had to stay honest once we got elected. We had to go back to the people who elected us and said, now we are inside, what more can we do? And we got Women's Manifesto, policy manifesto. It's about policies and laws. That's what makes the changes. So, Halima, I have been exactly uh, where you have been with the frustration of other women who you may as well take mm -hmm. a photograph. Uh, as I used mm -hmm. to say, take a picture of them and put it there because they're not likely to hear them and will rarely see them except when they show up in a seat. But the other thing I want to say to you is that when women get into those positions, we expect everything of them in a way that we don't expect the same of men. There's very high expectations. I was in that position. And so we have to learn to prioritize and, and select the bits that we can see through to the final stages. Mm. Um, and that was something that I had to keep going back to the communities and say, you've given me these priorities. These are the things we're going to focus on. And this is what we're going to see through with you helping us to mm. lobby and to advocate with the other parties that we make sure that we get these laws changed. So all I would say is that we need to encourage the good ones that are there. We need to put support mechanisms in around the good ones who are there. It's a very lonely place especially when we've spent our lives in civil society, that you jump into this all-male space, predominantly all-male. It is changing, but it's certainly not a critical mass of women. And so when I look now back at my life in politics, I would see a big gap, in, but it's now changing also, 
in getting women to advocate for women and support women and do some of the heavy lifting for those women who made that big jump into politics. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, um, with Monica. I mean, it's not a binary thing. In fact, I mean, what's politics, Monica? Isn't that the art of the possible? <laughs> and what is a peace process? It is also the art of the possible. You have to be willing to compromise so that you can attain an outcome that is good enough for both. Not the best possible outcome, but good enough that you can actually live with it. So there are a lot of similarities. Our problem today is that you've got a rise of authoritarianism, and that is uh, being helped along by the pandemic, which uh, actually requires very authoritarianistic uh, measures so that people can, can be safe. And when that happens, then your political process gets skewed. And as that gets skewed and it permeates down to the bottom, your peace process also gets skewed. So what do we do? I have come to a point where, you know, in my youth, I was an activist, not an accidental activist. I mean, I really went for it, Monica. But now that I'm a senior citizen and have had decades to look back, I see the importance of doing it slow by slow. If you want to change anything, you have to make the community want it. And how do you do it? It's the way uh, ICANN is helping us in the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership to make changes. Halima is doing it, uh, working with women who can stand to parliament, who can be elected. But you have to start from the community level up. The problem with those who are supposed to help us, to help empower us, who gave all of these fantastic statements and security resolutions, is that they're very good at the big picture. But when it comes to the little family pictures, they're not so good. And what, what we need to do is what Halima is doing is to strengthen the capacity at the community level. Unfortunately, it's not sexy because it's so painstaking and takes too much time. So whoever said that sexy lasts, but a woman who has established a base, that woman is going to last. And then you will see peace and politics becoming a little bit more positive than what Joseph uh, thinks it is. Thank you. Um, we have one of the, um, over the years, you know, I've often, often heard that, uh, and then this is a question that's come up, that, you know, isn't it cultural barriers that keeps women out of peace processes? You know, it's, it's, the, it's the local culture. And, and my, I, my simple answer to that is that if it was about culture, it would look very different from Colombia to Nepal to Afghanistan to, to Yemen. These are very different cultures, but it's the same, or Northern Ireland for that matter, but it's the same story everywhere. So it's really not about culture per se, but it's about how peace processes are highly exclusive domains where so much is at stake. And, and um, therefore people want it to be in the hands of fewer people, right? It's there's the, the, so much is, is at stake that it's, and it's, and it's historically we've thought about war and peace in the hands of the military and the political elite. And that's kind of the, the model that, that, that's, that keeps going forward. But my question um, to all of you, and, and it's you know, certainly in my work and, and, and everything that you guys have all practiced as well, is that 
if we had the standard, the norm for our for the peace processes in Yemen, in Afghanistan, if they'd let it happen, in Syria, etc., if the norm had been that women have their own women peace builders, or, and we can even extend that and say people who have a track record in peace building and peacemaking at the community level, women, young people, etc., have their own delegation. They are recognized as actors in the stage not as conflict actors, not as violent actors, but as peace actors. And they should have their own delegation present to address the, the concerns and issues that they have and bring forward their, their vision. Would that change the chance of peacemaking and peacebuilding and the success of peacebuilding? Is, is that one of the solutions that is kind of obvious sitting in front of us and we're not doing enough for it as, as a step? And I'm yes. I, you know, I open anybody who wants to, yeah. yeah. I think yes. Uh, uh, if today, if today we have uh, that kind of uh, mindset amongst our governments, and we have uh, women, for example, or uh, you know, both women and men, and uh, are all part of peace building, then I think we have a different mindset in our countries, where uh, the position that will be given will 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 enable our government to think differently when it comes to matters of conflict when it comes to matters of uh, handling uh, violent extremism, when it comes to matters of working with women in peace building. Because we, we, we often talk about this and we often tell them what we want, but again, they, they are not in our shoes. They do not have, they do not receive phone calls in the middle of the night for rescue, you know? The only thing they do is uh, they sit in, our, in, in their offices and we, we tell them what is happening. But again, if that position is, is um, is, is given and uh, people are able to report what is ha happening, then I guess even our government will be thinking differently because these matters will be taken into consideration whenever they are passing laws, whenever they are making their judgment at the, at the judiciary, at the executive level. So things will have been different, Sana. Um, I, uh, I hope be between now and uh, 10 years to come, we, we will have uh, different mindset of the leaders who will be taking up this position in future. Sanan, we did do that. That's exactly what we did. Um, the election system that was to our peace talks was very innovative and very creative, but it wasn't created to get women to the table because it was, as you said before, UN 1325's resolution, it was created to get the armed groups to the table. Um, and when we saw the system, we said, well, uh, we women have been around for 25 years at the interfaces, building the peace from the bottom up, from the grassroots. Why can't we be one of these? Mm -hmm. And it was almost like a vanguard action. We had no intentions of getting elected. But we went out and did the work, and then within six weeks we got elected, and we were the women-only delegation. Had we not been at the table, there would have been no women at the table. Had we not been at the table, there would have been nothing in the peace agreement about victims, about victim reparations. There would have been nothing about reconciliation. There would have been nothing about children going to school together in integrated education, about sharing the resources, about community development, about youth. All of that would have been missing. So that was the value added. But why I want to add to this point about the delegation. If the delegation is progressive, and it's also about trying to create what Amina has addressed, the issue of consensus. Why is it that women work harder to get consensus across division? 
because we pay the price when mm -hmm. that consensus breaks down. And so our delegation was made up of women from each side. Now, I can tell you that's a very difficult thing to do as the leader of that party, to bring women from opposite sides with different ideologies and preferably wanting different outcomes and sometimes having different interests. But we worked hard at that consensus. So there are models. I think the before our peace agreement in Northern Ireland, we had the model of the um, in, um, Guatemala, mm -hmm. where there was a parallel delegation of women feeding in. Then Colombia did the same when they brought the women to Cuba and the FARC women and the government women came together and saw what we had done and others. And they formed a gender committee and their peace agreement on sad to say is not being implemented, but at least it's an, an amazing peace agreement mm. in relation to what women got in. And even I think in the Philippines, there was an issue of not recognizing some of the women, but then actually working a ways. I, I remember listening to the woman who's now deceased, um, who brought together civil society networks. It was a fantastic network. Uh, in terms of feeding into the negotiations there uh, and creating a, a formal way of doing it. And Stefan de Mistura um, did it with the Syrian. He had a, a women's advisory group who actually were made up of women from both sides, which is very difficult, but they weren't taken, you know, it was stood down because the UN, for whatever reasons, didn't continue to see it as being productive. Um, and now we know that having civil society delegations is also important. So constantly through your work at the LSE and through your work in the ICANN and in lots of others, these are the models that we know work and that we have mm -hmm. to continue snowballing and building. Thank you. Um, Amina, thoughts on, on this question? I mean, again, Philippines has done some unbelievable work on inclusion and community action. And I, I remember even the, the peace zones, the village peace zones yes. where, where local villages had said to both sides, you know, you come through here, you, you don't, you know, there's no violence. So, so that, that very, very grassroots work, has that sustained itself? Is, is, are the remnants of that still there? Or is it hard to, you know, when, again, as you say, when you have authoritarianism and changes, um, what, what's, what's happening in terms of the, the fundamental principle of inclus inclusivity and specifically around peace builders and, and women peace builders being present? Well, at the national level, uh, you have, um, it's obvious to the, the whole world. We have some problems about, <laughs> uh, <laughs> about how our president uh, acts, especially when it comes to, to gender issues and uh, women, uh, women leaders. But this is the thing, because the Philippines, like um, most of the countries in Southeast Asia, we have generations of homegrown empowerment of women, where it's not strange at all for a woman to be a community leader, a business leader, an educator, a doctor. It's accepted. It's not, it's not a Western we have that. Yeah, we have that to, to build on. Yeah. So whatever um, uh, setbacks we may have had in the last uh, five years, at the community level, there is that bedrock, especially since civil society organizations like ours, like uh, ICANN and WAS, uh, continue to try and provide the link, the lifeline, so that the capacitating uh, would continue. But 
that is why I keep talking about the role of the multilaterals and the bilaterals and the regional organizations to find a way to bring the resources to that level. Because if that is solid bedrock, then it doesn't really matter uh, the, the sounds coming from the national. Mm-hmm. The development for peace, the strengthening of democratic structures will continue at the community level. And that is what you need, strong community support, because that's the concrete that you need. Yeah. And, and, and the, obviously the logic is also is that if people are given the, the you know, social economic resources for a dignified life, chances are they wouldn't necessarily be drawn towards extremist demagoguery and, and leadership and, and so forth as well. We have a few minutes left um, and I wanted to sort of uh, switch it to thinking about um, the lessons and you know genuine like solutions. If you were in charge right now at uh, whether it's at the UN, at ASEAN or at a national level, and or as a mediator for for the for the peace talks in Yemen or or any of these you know Colombia where where the process has been faltering and and so forth what would you what are the solutions that you would put on the table what would you try and do differently based on the lessons and and the experiences that you've had um and uh you know Monica I'll start with you and we'll go around again well i can only speak for the lessons that we learned um and one that Colombia um picked up was to deal with the victims immediately, to deal with the harms that were caused and the gender-specific harms that were caused. Um, Because 25 years later, we are now tearing our country apart Mm -hmm. because we haven't agreed um, a process for dealing with that. Mm -hmm. Um, South Africa did it, and we know that its name was Truth um, and Reconciliation. And I put forward a proposal 25 years ago at our peace agreement that we call ourselves a peace and justice commission. Mm -hmm. And because it came from the women, it fell off the table. Um, It just gathered dust and was never done. And so that's a very important issue. Um, And obviously I'm particularly focused on violence against women and girls Mm -hmm. because that's not given the priority it should be given. And when you deal with that, you're also dealing with the transformation of attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, because that will just continue to become a running sore. Um, and so there are issues like that that are important. The issues we've talked about, um, changing the governance arrangements, mm-hmm. changing the, making electoral reform more representative, the things that Halima and Amina have spoken about. Um, and indeed, there are many other issues. We did deal with Um, lots of economic and social development issues, but we didn't give them the same priority. Uh, And I'm now dealing with um, the disbandment. Um, Sometimes that word doesn't translate very well. The ending of armed groups, paramilitaries, you've heard about countering extreme violence, etc. These guys take on a life of their own Mm -hmm. after a conflict is finished and they become criminals. They become gangsters when they fracture and can't get power themselves. And they, they try to destroy the communities. Mm. So a lot of effort should have been put in to, as Amina says and Halima says, into the grassroots of education, civil society, mm. the resilience work to get those guys off their backs, to make sure that they do not get the power. So you've got two kinds of power and abusive power going on. That amongst those guys who only want to continue forever in their positions with the same old divisive sectional interests and the guys that have turned to criminality, making it the only aspiration for these kids 
who are not numerate and who are not literate. So I would yeah. pay, those are the things I would pay attention to if I was in, uh, and I wasn't, um, I was on the margins. Um, but simply shouting in from the margins that we needed to pay attention to those issues. Otherwise, you were going to have the conflict coming back and back again in different guises. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because we have colleagues in other places where they're tap, tapping directly into this sort of pipeline of young men and boys that, are, that get recruited. And the minute they offer alternatives, the big guys, wherever it is behind the scenes that, is, that, is, that draws them in, start to attack the women. Because it's if you don't have the the bodies to do the fighting, um, you're you're lost. So so it's it's a very very dangerous but but unbelievably important um, area of work to get into. Um, uh, Halima, um, Amina, any thoughts on solutions that you would take forward? Um, you know, and and you know, ideas for somebody said, how do we effectively advocate for better implementation? Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether advocacy is is enough anymore, but um, but if you wanted to act, what? Yeah, and you are acting, but what what would you say the solutions are or lessons? Um, I think for me, uh, basically, uh, I like to, if I were in that in that position, maybe I like to provide a, a you know a policy framework for safety and security for peace builders not only women, but general, general peace builders. At the same time, is offering an alternative, an alternative for returnees. These are either uh, female, uh, female returnees, those who come back to, our, to, back to the communities after they have either joined Al-Shabaab or ISIS or other groups. So giving them an alternative, an alternative in a way that um, if they are offering more money, we offer them something to stay back in our country so that we can grow our economy. Um, the, the things that Boko Haram are doing, the things that um, Al-Shabaab are doing, they are, giving they are giving our young people, our both men and women, things that maybe we cannot offer as a country. But again, we want them to stay back in our country. It's risky the work that we do, where we, we talk to these people, we are risking our lives as peace builders. But again, uh, as a country, I think we need to offer alternative to our young people to stay back in our country. If it's issues to do with economic empowerment, then go for it. The government needs to put much pressure and much more money into that sector for young people to stay back in the country. Um, uh, like I said, um, the work that we do, if it's not about passion, I don't think we'll be here today, Sana. But, but I think passion is what drives us where we are today. Passion is what makes us be at the front line as women peace builders to champion for the better lives of our community. Thank you. And Amina, last word to you. Well, um, if I were in a position to make an impact, um, I will always have at the top of my mind uh, the, the statement that you cannot impose change from the outside. And in fact, General Milley himself said that about, uh, about Afghanistan. And I remember when I, when I was living in Washington, D.C., right after 9-11, I saw a bumper sticker mm -hmm. and it said, you better watch it or I will come and democratize you. <laughs> and this is what this is the impression now that democracy is a weapon. So tying that back to the idea that you cannot change anything, any community from the outside, then we go back to the very Islamic. God is going to change the condition of man only if he or she will change it himself. So if I were in a position I would find a way to strengthen the people who are there within trying to change the community. Maybe it's slow, 
painstaking, but change it will. And at the heart of that are the women, the peace builders. So I would support and make sure that the support goes to uh, groups like Halimas in, uh, in Kenya and uh, Lucy's in, in Palestine. And mm -hmm. That, I think, is what I would do. And that is going to have a really true impact. It's not going to be big conference where you are in the media for a whole day and then nothing. But check with us over the, after 10 years and we will be stronger. But um, uh, Salam, can I say back to that, that if you don't have the person who holds the purse strings, who helps with the resources, who funds those groups, it's very difficult to do that work yeah. without this. Right. right. We can have, we have the energy, we have the passion. Um, and when I said it was an accidental activist, I meant that the issues were thrown at me accidentally. Mm -hmm. Um, I was certainly prepared to be an activist. Um, and that's what you need, is that you need those. So you need the people inside the system who are prepared, as I was, to give 15 million pounds to work with women in grassroots. Mm -hmm. And had I not been on that commission, had I not been in that position, those women wouldn't have got that money. I was the only woman on that panel. There were three men. We were set up by uh, the governments. And I said, you know, what's happening to the women here? They're the ones building this work, building the resilience, standing up to these coercive controllers. So let's fund them and let's sustain the good work they're doing rather than having them running around with tin cans outside shops begging for money to keep their little centres open. So you really do need both uh, inside and outside, and the two work in tandem. Thank you. No, that's and uh, it's. Uh, it reminds me. I, 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 when I've been in spaces with philanthropists and private philanthropists, and and now we have a whole world of sort of very wealthy women who have discovered their feminism and want to put money to it. Um, first of all, I I'm struck by how reluctant they are to support peace builders and understand mm. that there is this incredible world of you know. 23, 24% of the world is living in fragile contexts and peace actually matters. That's that's one thing. But the other thing that I find interesting is that it's it's not just about putting their um, money where their, where their mouth is, it's putting their mouth where their money is as well, in uh. the sense of using their political platform or their access to the politicians or to the media or to the you know stars to raise the issues and, and yes, bring serious resources in, into this right. world of, of peace because it makes a huge, a little bit of money goes a very, very long way in terms of peace building and peacemaking. Um, so on that note, thank you so much. Uh, please check out Amina's podcast, She Talks Peace, um, Halima's work on the Shebo's Peace Campaign in Kenya and elsewhere, and of course, Monica's book, uh, Stand Up, Speak Out, which Monica told me last time that it was delayed. The publication was delayed because there was no paper. Is that is that the, because of Brexit? So, yes. So yeah. thank our Brexit gods for, for reducing our paper supplies. Um, but the book is coming out for Christmas, we hope. So thank you. So now, can I take the opportunity to thank, thank you, you um, and my woman, Amina and Helena. They are my sisters. And long thank may they go on doing what they're doing. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, to have you, the podcast will be okay. ready. Next session is December 7th, and we will be talking about violence against women in conflict settings. So join us um, uh, for that. And uh, we will be publishing and putting all these things on social media. Thank you very much. Thank you, Monica, Amina, Halima. Lovely to have started the day with you. Bye. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.